And um, it's actually been about six years since I preached, so my guess is for half, more than half of you, this is the first time you'll be hearing me. And all of the kids, my kids and their friends, are all now old enough to hear me uh, bring the message, and unfortunately, most of them are away. Thanks, Jess, for being here and support. Um, so, um, I, um, John and Jed, oh, John just left, but I really appreciate John and Jed's words. Um, um, John in the opening and Jed out of Ephesians um, really dovetails um, well with what I want to talk about today, and we did not coordinate, so I think it's cool when God orchestrates, and, and even the worship songs um, throughout when um, God orchestrates all of that together um, as we come, as we try to bring our worship service together. But um, I have an interesting story today, or a unique story, or an amazing story, a um, confusing story, uh, passage, an account. Um, it was hard to pick the best adjective to use for this. Um, although with all of the um, children of impressionable age gone, it probably would have been a good week to do the um, story of Lot's daughters propagating his line through their father with um, all of the middle schooler and high schoolers gone. But Alas, this is what's been assigned to me, and uh, it's always a privilege uh, to bring the Word of God. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we will dig in. Heavenly Father, thanks for um, all the um, uh, elements of worship, from the prayers to the to the music to uh, the invocation from John, just all of the words of scriptures, the reminders of Jesus, uh, and his uh, desire to have a relationship with us for our salvation. Uh, for the gift of faith, even to receive, as Jed uh, mentioned in prayer time, and the fact that you've created us for good works. And we know from Ephesians that everything is to be done out of faith. And as we go through this passage today, this this difficult, confusing at times, yet um, passage of great hope and promise of the Messiah, may we um, be challenged to look at our own lives. May we be reminded that uh, you are a great God who provides for us, um, you provide even the faith that we have. You just ask us to exercise that. Give us insight into your word. May my words be your words, and that all of this be done for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It was a dark and stormy night. Actually, it wasn't. It was a beautiful April, sunny afternoon, warm sun, um, in a boat on the Potomac River, cherry blossoms in full bloom. It was us and the Rist family. And... Uh, we were enjoying the cherry blossoms from the boat outside the Jefferson Memorial without all of the traffic. Beautiful sun, glass of wine. We're Presbyterians. We can do that. Life was good. Uh, we were relaxed, without a care, just taking in the scenery, just enjoying. And all of a sudden, Phoebe says, hey, is that water coming in the back of the boat? And um, it's, no, there's no water. It's just Phoebe making stuff up. So I look back, and sure enough, there's water trickling out of the engine compartment. The only thing about a boat, it's in the back. So um, very quickly I realized that I had forgotten to put in the drain plug in the boat, which is a bad thing. Unfortunately, panic set in, and I decided instead of going the 20 yards to the um, D.C. side of the shore to put the plug back in, I decided instead to travel a half mile back across the Potomac River to a Virginia Marine on the Virginia side. Bad decision. We're taking on water fast. We're about halfway into the uh, Potomac River, and we're taking on water. The engine's slowing to a crawl, and um, be, I was beyond panic. Um, didn't see any other boats. It's just sitting uh, us in the middle, just crawling and crawling. Somebody had a bail bucket in any case. Um, and note, in April, uh, the Potomac River is still very icy, very chilly. 
all of a sudden, we looked up and there was a Coast Guard boat pulling up next to us, asking if we needed help. Now, obviously, I was overwhelmed as the captain. I never saw this boat. Um, I don't think the risks in my family saw it either. Maybe we weren't paying attention, but there it was, a boat next to us. Um, long story short, um, the Coast Guard towed us to safety. Uh, there, there's no way in denying that this was a miracle. You can't explain this any, way, any other way. This just this showed up. Uh, so God clearly's provision clearly provided um, over my bad decision making. Emotionally, though, the immediate emergency was was um, from emotional was was just panic. I was overwhelmed. But once this had passed, everyone was laughing. Uh, but my mind continued to race with thoughts, uh, with a variety of thoughts and emotions. And the one that stood out the most was fear. Um, obviously, fear to harm to my family and and, and our dear friends. Um, yeah, or the fear of loss. Um, my question, first question for you this morning is, what do you fear? And as we think about that, what you know, what you fear, what are other people, what are the top things that most other people fear? A survey was done on this, and as you would expect, the top um, item of fear is death and all the varieties of ways in which one could die, like drowning in the icy Potomac. Um, but after death, the, the list was interesting. One of the top items um, was public speaking, ironically, what I'm doing now. And for many, public speaking is worse than death. I, fortunately, I can't say that. Um, but other items that made the list, loss of job, loss of health, um, and the loss of a child. Um, for those in the audience that are parents, if you've ever experienced even remotely losing your child for a short period of time, the fear and the panic that sets in, there's a great sense of helplessness and it, it's a panic worse sometimes than your own um, than your own uh, loss of your own life uh, but well hopefully this morning all your children are accounted for and we trust the ones that are retreat are in good hands and um, we're not on the Potomac River and we are here in the book of Genesis chapter 2 continuing the series um, so if you guys could open your Bibles to chapter 22 Depending on your version or version or translation, as you're turning, uh, most Bibles have a chapter heading. Um, some of them may say the sacrifice of Isaac or the offering of Isaac. Um, for those that know the account of Abraham's life, you realize that this story is unique in all of Scripture. He is act, asked to sacrifice as a burnt offering his only son Isaac. This is a long-awaited son of promise, the miracle child. This is coming after multiple uh, reaffirmations and reassurances from God to Abraham over many, many years. So um, I wasn't here last week, but Dr. Dave covered Isaac, the miracle child. Uh, so as you listen to that, and now we hear this command, it, it just sounds inconceivable that God would ask to do that. Um, is God changing his mind, or as our kids like to say, just kidding? I don't think that's the case here, because we know that God does not contradict himself. So what could be going on here? Um, some of your Bible translations may, chap may title this chapter as Abraham tested or Abraham's faith tested. And I think both paragraph um, headings are accurate, but it offers a different perspective on the situation. But still, this passage is unique and that, it, that Abe's, Abe's test was asking him to make the ultimate sacrifice for himself and offering Isaac. It was testing the boundaries of his faith and his commitment to God. As Pastor Steve Cole of Flagstaff, Arizona, Christian Fellowship put it, Abraham's obedient surrender is the high point of faith in all of history. It stands like Mount Everest above where most of us have never been. 
I can only stand below and point up to its heights, aware of how, I'm sorry, it's a quote, aware of how, um, of how my own faith falls far short. So, end quote. For us, we can't help ourselves. Questions like, self, what would I do in this situation? Or, what if God asked this of me? For those that may not be familiar with this story, um, understand for now that this account is perhaps the most unique, intriguing, and moving in all of Scripture. It invokes many questions, invokes, stirs emotions, could be shock, fear, anger, uh, great wonder, maybe confusion. It challenges us to examine our faith and trust in God. Despite its appearance as an outrageous request, the story is really about God's ultimate sacrifice for us. It's rich in symbolism and prophecy of God's only son, Jesus Christ, and foreshadows what God would ultimately do for us. This episode also brings to a climax God's dealing with Abraham. What do I mean by this? So let's do a short review. Abraham's life of faith began back in Genesis 12 when he was in the land of Ur. God called him out, told him that he would make him to a great nation, and told him to basically begin a road trip, and God would reveal the details as he went along. This promise would be repeated many times again over the years, um, uh, often with much drama, unique rituals, circumcision. There was a cow cut in half and a torch passed through that um, back in chapter 15. that's the way the contracts were done, by the way, back then is the cow was cut in half and it was a contract where the two parties walked through and we've covered that in the past. In Genesis 17, Abraham is now 99. The covenant of um, circumcision was given. This was an outward sign. But at each of these events, the promise of a son from his own body was repeated uh, and, it was, and it was stated that it would be the, um, um, from his wife, Sarah and the promises of land, and the promises of being a father of many nations. So this has been given to him all along. We also need to remember that during these 25 years, Abraham's growth in faith has has been uneven. He's had mountaintops and sinful valleys. Um, Example, two weeks ago, Jeff, um, our intern Jeff, um, talked the sermon was about besetting sins, and we saw there that uh, this was the account where, where Abraham had lied about his sister Sarah, I'm sorry, I mean his wife, um, for the second time, and in the same way to Abimelech as he did to Pharaoh. And the affair with Hagar, rather than waiting for God to fill promises through Sarah, this created over 15 years of domestic misery. Last week we learned in chapter 21 that Sarah had, I'm fast-forwarding a little bit, Sarah had Ishmael, had Isaac, Ishmael was sent away, And this treaty with Abimelech gave him land. He was a sojourner in the land, um, but he now had land. So these promises have been fulfilled. This brings us to the climax in chapter 22. It's about 15 years later, so Abraham is now about 115. Pastor commentator Bill Baldwin writes, Abraham is finally sitting pretty. He's left his homeland at God's command. He's become rich, being treated like a king in a land of promise. Having left behind whatever earthly inheritance was promised. He has received the promise of a heavenly inheritance. Having longed for a son, the promised seed who inherit these promises and in whom his family will be great, he has at last in his old age received Isaac. But there is yet a danger. Will he hope in the things God has given him rather than in God the giver? Or will he trust at last that God, who has done so many impossible things up to this point, can one, do all things, 
Two, that God's way is always best. Third, that God's foolishness is wiser than Abraham's or anyone else's wisdom. And four, that God's weakness is stronger than men's strength, end quote. So let's read our passage for this morning and find out. From chapter 22, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Let's hear the word of God. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early, take note of that, rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, to these young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy, we will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And they both went, um, and he took the hand in the fire and they both went, both of them went together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide a burnt offering, but provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So both of them went together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac and laid him on, on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now, I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and behold, looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught by its horns in the thicket. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt, burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name as it is to, Abraham called the name of that place. The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his, bro his firstborn, Buzz, his brother. Kemuel, the father of Aram. Chesed, Hazo, Pildash. Jildath and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah, and these a Milcar bore to Nahor, Abram's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Remah, or Teba, Gehem, Tehash, and Mekah. 
And this ends the reading of God's word. So by now, I hope you agree, if you didn't before, you were not familiar with this passage, that this is truly a most unique passage in all of Scripture. Because of this, there were significantly differences taken by the commentators that I used. Most of them approached this passage with the key themes of God's provision, um, faith and obedience, and testing. One perspective, a very different perspective, was to cover it almost exclusively as a foreshadowing of Christ. Another one presented as a lesson on ultimate surrender um, and unflinching obedience to the difficult commands of God. While another took an almost opposite perspective to this and said the point of the story is not to convince us to make outlandish sacrifices to God, but rather it painted in vivid colors the lavish sacrifices of God. I think all of these perspectives have truth and value to us today. So my challenge was to consolidate a great deal of this commentary into a 90-minute sermon. <laughs> but as seen in the, uh, the title for my title, well, Dave, Dr. Dave's title for today, um, the primary perspective um, that I focus on today is the provision of God in partnership with our faith while attempting to address key points um, from um, the other different perspective. So again, focus will be provision of God in partnership with our faith. Um, we will examine foreshadowing and faith and testing and all that other stuff as well. Uh, so let's begin walking through this passage together. Um, beginning at verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So the account begins with God's command in verses 1 and 2. We read that this command is a test from God. Moses, the author of Genesis, tells us that it was asked possibly to, sh uh, to um, uh, shield us from the shock that may follow on this command. Um, the word test also lets us know that God did not really intend for the sacrifice to take place. Abraham, however, did not know this was a test, and these words had to be incredibly painful to him. The son you love, your only son, the son of laughter, the seed of the promise. There's a tremendous amount at stake here. How is he going to be the father of many nations with no descendants? Ishmael was not the chosen one, and worse, had been sent away uh, 15 years prior. And over that 15 years, there's now been 15 years of affection and heart knitting between Abraham and Isaac. So more than just being a miracle child, as a miracle child in our old age, there's even more at, at stake here um, in Abraham the father. So while the request to sacrifice any child would be difficult, more so for Abram, Abraham. And if all of this isn't enough, remember that Isaac has a mother and one of the um, uh, young women in my Sunday school class this morning pointed out and said, wait a minute, what about mom? Isaac's just, I mean, Abram just getting up, left early, didn't say anything to mom. Uh, so Abram returns with blood-spattered garments. What's he going to tell uh, Sarah uh, about the blood? And, oh, by the way, your child is... I like the way you did it, Jess. Uh, but I can imagine some of you moms out there ju just shuddering at this, at this command or just this story thus far. Um, on the practical side, the command is inconsistent with God's personal dealings with Abraham uh, up to this point, and it appears to contradict the command in Genesis 9, chapter 6, where it talks about, and this is after, um, after the flood, where the command is given not to shed the blood of men. Uh, 
But the practice of child sacrifice was fairly common in that ancient um, Near East, in Canaan and Ur, um, both places he lived. So it was not the, beyond the range of his personal experience or his knowledge to see and witness child sacrifice. The biblical laws against that did not come into a later point in time. So perhaps Abraham was puzzled at this um, command. Uh, one commentator wrote, to Abraham then, the experience was culturally related. If pagan deities who were non-existent demanded such love and sacrifice, was it asking too much for the true God of heaven to require the same? End quote. Maybe God had some other ideas. Um, therein lies a quandary. This command is against all life, hope, promise, affections for Abraham, as well as understanding of God's promises that have been given prior. Oh, by the way, this is not the best marriage builder that I know of. So then, and this was asked in, in our Sunday school class, why the command to sacrifice Isaac? What's up with that, God? This is, this is high schoolers speaking, of course. Um, that's not in scripture. Because God, um, again, why the command to sacrifice Isaac? Because God was testing his faith, a faith that had been commended um, in other places um, on the basis, um, the faith had been commended as the basis of his righteousness. This faith has had its ups and downs, which we've seen, but clearly has grown through the years after substantial um, blessing, spiritual growth, and just time with the Lord. So this then, um, this faith up to this, this growth in faith, becomes the grounds for a greater test. Growth in faith requires greater tests to produce greater faith. It's like the physical exercise principle. You either have to increase resistance or time or weight or the amount of weight to get stronger. Very similar when we talk about exercising our faith. Remember, though, that we know this. God kept Abraham in the dark about his purposes. But maybe Abraham knows a few important key things about God at this point um, from, his, from his years of walking. Maybe he, by this point he understands whatever God requests is right. That maybe God has purposed only good toward him. And maybe he should have the confidence that God will supply all the needs and fulfill all his promises. So in summary then, the test had two main purposes. First, it was to see whether Abraham really believes what he knows about God. Or whether he values all the stuff that God has given him more than God the giver. And the second, the test is not meant to trap um, the patriarch or tempt him to evil. Rather, it was the opposite effect. It was intended to strengthen him and build him up. So what about us? Does God test us? So before we answer this, um, let's be clear on the word test. Um, other synonyms for the word test would be tr to try or to prove. Um, some of you may, may be asking, is this temptation? Well, no, tem temptation is not, sorry, testing is not a synonym for tempt. While man may tempt God out of doubt or improper motives, God never tempts us. Um, it says in James chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their, own desire, by their own evil desire and enticed. One commentator writes, Temptation or testing in the bad sense always proceeds out of the malice of Satan working on the corruptions of our own hearts. God, however, may bring his creatures into circumstances of special testing. 
not for the purpose of supplying information about God himself, but in order to reveal to the individuals the dispositions of their own hearts. So I'm back to our question. Does God test us or prove us? Yes. Why? Same reasons he tested Abraham. Our growth in faith, like his, requires exercise, um, requires testing or exercise of this faith. As Abraham shows us, the genuineness of obedience reveals the depth of our trust in God. The same commentator also writes, Testing is one of the means by which God carries out his saving purposes. Often people do not know why they're testing until after the test is over. It's only after they've been preserved, proved, purified, disciplined, and taught that they can move beyond the situation strong in faith, strong in faith, and strengthen for the more difficult tasks ahead, end quote. It's important to note, and I found this point really interesting, important to note that God does not test the heathen, only his own. Say it again. God does not test the unbeliever, the heathen. He only tests his own. I found that again interesting. I mentioned in the introduction that this account richly foreshadows Christ. Um, the first place to take note of this is the location Abraham is asked to go to, is Moriah. Um, and after the three-day journey, they come to Moriah. Uh, the, the, this, this location is actually in Jerusalem when they climb the mount. We'll see in a minute when they climb the mount. This is Jerusalem. The location of Moriah is actually where the temple will be built, where Solomon's temple will be built later in the future. thought that was a real cool God thing as we went through that. But the location for Abram's burnt offering is also the place where thousands more animal sacrifices will take place over the um, course of time until the future when Jesus, the perfect and final sacrifice, takes place. So moving on. I'm sorry, just a, I forgot to, in the beginning, that I did not have time to get an outline together. Um, but the next um, section we'll move on to, if you're following along in your Bible, verses 3 through 10. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood before the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay with the donkey, I and the boy. We'll go over the worship and come back to you again. And Abraham took the word of the burnt offering, laid it on his son Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and both of them went on together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, My son, here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God told Abraham, told him Abraham built the altar, laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on top of the altar, on the altar on the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. The account continues with Abraham's immediate, initial and immediate obedience, moves quickly to the place of sacrifice and then switches to slow motion at the highest point of suspension, just as a knife was being used to slit the throat. Yet all of these verses occurred over a period of three days of time. So as we walk through this journey to Moriah, I want us to think about what we would have been thinking and doing and feeling if, if this were us on a journey. I want us all to put ourselves in Abraham's place. And as we go through, you can actually also put on the sons, put in your, on your hat, maybe some of you young, younger ones here, um, put on the Isaac hat and 
understand, but I want us to walk through this story together. Verse 3 says he arose early in the morning. No hesitation, no delay. The text implies that this was not his normal morning routine, so he wasn't sleeping in. Um, Just immediate obedience. Most of us procrastinate on significantly less serious commands or requests from this from other people or especially God. I just can't imagine being asked um, such an agonizing sacrifice and then just doing immediately. Yeah, God, I'll get to it. And just kind of dragging your feet or let's take some day, a few days to think about it. Um, uh, Or maybe I would have gone and then accidentally, accidentally forgotten to take the wood. Or as you're traveling up there, the sign says Mariah to the east, but you know, maybe you misread the sign and you go to the west. And one of my brilliant Sunday school students, um, pointed out something that, you know, maybe Isaac just decides to, to run away um, as you're going up there. But in either case, I'm sure all of us, all of you all are, are thinking of your excuses as I thought of mine. Um, you know, forgetting the wood was a good one. And uh, moving on in verses four and five, it's now three days later. But what kind of thoughts must have been going through Abraham's uh, mind over this period? Were there doubts? Were there fears? Um, was there was there the battle of knowing about God versus believing in God? So again, the the, the battle that I saw as I was reading it, uh, the battle of knowing about God versus believing in God. Also, three days in the wilderness is a really long time for Satan to begin to tempt, attack him, to, uh, attack his faith, and tempt him to doubt God. I mean, after all, isn't Satan's best line? Did God really say? Now, I can imagine him saying something to Abraham. Did God really say sacrifice your son? Or are you sure it wasn't take your son to a sacrifice? But again, three days is a lot of time, a lot of emotions going on. You know, what is Abraham thinking? What would we be thinking? Um, but whatever it is, Scripture doesn't record it. Um, but his thoughts and fears regarding the loss of his promised son, he, it's clear that he resolved these issues along the journey. Because when he um, when he gets to it, well, look at verse 5. Um, look what he says to his servants regarding um, the journey to worship. We will go and we will come back. So it's a vague, uh, it's a vague, but it's also sincere in what he says to his servants. By faith, he is fully convinced that after worshiping, that after sacrificing Isaac as a burnt offering, they would return together. Hebrews, um, New Testament Hebrews records in chapter 11, verse 17, and it does tell us, it gives us a a different perspective, you know. Um, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he would receive the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. He considered that God was able even to raise from the dead, raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So Abraham envisioned the resurrection long before um, there was any known, anything in history suggested such a thing. Now, we know the end of the story, so it's easy for us to look at Abraham and say um, that Abraham embodies Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on, on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Uh, for us, like Abraham, we often don't know how things will turn out. But these verses are written to us when we are at the beginning of, uh, of each situation God brings into our life. So 
we can take comfort in these verses. Um, like Abe, we need to trust in the Lord with our whole heart and lean not on our understanding, even when we don't know the outcome. Moving on, verse 6. Verse 6 tells us, Isaac carried the firewood on his back. It's too steep for the donkey. So they begin this ascent up to Jerusalem on foot. Um, and Jerusalem's the city on the hill. We see here um, a prophetic image of Christ through Isaac, and, and I just think it's amazing. As Christ, the condemned man, carried his own wooden cross, here Isaac carries the instrument of death, um, wood for sacrificial fire. Um, again, not much dialogue is recorded. Finally, in verse 7 and 8, the silence is broken with a short dialogue between Isaac and Abraham. My father, my son, um, is there to show the affection um, in that language. This was, was showing the uh, affection between them. Abraham was not a distant father. Uh, commentary is not clear whether Abraham was just sort of an autopilot in mechanical mode, how he was feeling, but this dialogue clearly indicates the affection that was there. Perhaps it was God speaking through Isaac, asking Abraham the most penetrating question yet, where is the lamb? And Abraham answers, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering. So with incredible faith, he speaks words that he cannot see, but expects to God to provide in God's own way. R. Kent Hughes, um, pastor commentator, writes, Abraham's immortal answer to Isaac is the turning point of the story. It states Abraham's absolute trust in God, but also allows for God to be God. Abe cannot tell Isaac all he would like to know because Abraham truly does not know what God will do. His words are at the same time a declaration of trust, an expression of hope, a prophecy of the future, all breathe in a submissive spirit of prayer, end quote. So we see here in, see here in Isaac both a naivety and yet a trust in his father. Most of the journey in silence foreshadows Christ as um, Christ was prophesied in Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is being led to a slaughter, like a sheep before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Again, that, that rich uh, foreshadowing of Christ in uh, this story. Moving on to verses 9 and 10. Isaac, seeing no lamb and his father approaching with a knife, Splits the scene. Father, I don't think I believe in all this God stuff. See ya. No. But the story does slow down to an agonizing pace with all of the details listed till the very last minute and the gleaming knife. Um, and so we see Isaac goes willingly, um, allowing himself to be bound by his father and placed in the altar. Now understand, Abraham's, what, 115 years old? You know, they lived longer back then. I suspect he... May have not been weak and feeble, but he certainly was 115 years old. And there's a 15-year-old boy. Who do you think is going to win a battle of um, a wrestling match here? All right. Isaac is a young, strong male, perfectly capable of out-wrestling his dad. The ram and offered up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Once Abraham has revealed his heart by obedience, God intervenes and stops him. As commentator Ron Hutchcraft said, Abraham has relinquished the precious. I'm not going to try to do Gollum's voice, sorry. 
He has held back nothing from God. He truly believes what he he truly believes what he knows about God. So his works have matched his faith. As James writes in chapter 2:21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with works and that faith was completed by his works. End quote. Even with his faith, even with his faith though, um, the voice of God must have been um, the best voice Abraham had ever heard at that moment. Um, probably it never sounded better. God essentially says, Abraham, you've passed the test. Don't harm the boy. Um, we see similar words um, like this in Romans 8.32 where it says, "He." this is um, Paul writing in Romans um, about God, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will we not also along with him graciously give us all things? In Abraham's obedience to God's command, God intervenes, not to eliminate the worship sacrifice, but to provide a better one. I want to repeat that. God has intervened in this, not to eliminate the worship sacrifice, but to provide a better one. In verses 13 and 14, Abraham looks up and sees the lamb caught in the thicket. In an instant, God's intervention has provided a substitute. This lamb becomes a substitutionary sacrifice for Isaac. Again, we see the foreshadowing of Jesus, the Lamb of God, uh, being the substitution for us, the one who would die in our place for our sins. In an emotional moment, Abraham names the place the Lord will provide, which was the basis for the sermon title today, The Provision of God. God will provide the things for which he demands of us. Three days earlier, Abraham started his journey in faith, expecting God to keep his promises, but as Hebrews 11 told us, assuming that um, his son would die and that he would receive him back from the dead, a a resurrection um, situation. Instead, Abraham received a substitute, substitution, and foresaw foresaw resurrection as he symbolically received Isaac back from the dead. During this time, Abraham is the closest mortal that has ever gotten to God's experience and um, sacrificing an only son. Now back to the opening story. I had no idea how we were going to make it until after the test was over. Seeing the Coast Guard appear out of nowhere at the height of my fear, unfortunately not faith, um, was about as close as I can get to experiencing or imagining how Abraham felt when he saw the ram. Salvation, deliverance, a substitution. Although I did not hear, I don't know about my family or the rest, I didn't hear a heavenly voice announcing the end of my trial as Abraham did. Uh, Speaking of voices, um, God speaks again in verses 15 through 18. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. We see that um, Abraham's obedience draws another assurance of blessing. In essence, the covenant promises are reaffirmed yet again. Uh, These words should surround... should sound familiar to us by now. We've seen them in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. Now at this, the the additional um, thing we see is this is done emphatically by God as he swears an oath now 
and he swears by his own name. Um, Hebrews 6, chapter, chapter 6, verse 13 through 15 says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no greater name by which to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I bless you and multiply you. And thus, and, and Bible quote, and thus Abraham, having waited patiently, obtained the promise. This should give us great confidence and encouragement as well. R. Kent Hughes writes, God keeps every word of his and every promise of God is kept. He has sworn. He keeps his promises. He has made a unilateral covenant. He will be cut in half like the dead cow in Genesis 15 before his word is not carried out. It is only necessary to refer back to this oath to say that all the needs that say to say all that needs to be said about the promises of God. End quote. So like Abraham, there's great assurances and promises to us who obey. So we move to the end of the chapter, the last five verses, um, 19 through 24. I got to read these names again. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now, after these things, it was told to Abraham, behold, Milcah has born children to your brother Nahor, Uz, Buzz, Kemuel, Tessa, I'm going to go through these quickly, um, but I want to get to, and Bethuel. Key point here, Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother, and then there were four more from the concubine. After this great and moving account of Abraham, of his trials and faith and promises and covenants renewed and all this drama and all of this climax and resolution, we come to this wonderful Old Testament thing that we all love so much, a big list of names. This is actually a shorter list of names. Yeah, the, the begats were left out, but why is this here? Uh, sometimes in Genesis, genealogies are used to demark major sections um, in a life of a person or a life of Israel um, in the future. Um, but here, these verses divide the main part of Abraham, the main part of his life, um, from the events of the end of his life. Now, I don't want to give too much away here, um, but the important point out of these last few things is God is continuing to provide for Abraham, or more specifically in this case, for Isaac. Um, verse 20 mentions Nahor, that's Abraham's brother. So the rest of the people named in, this, uh, in these verses are Abraham's nieces and nephews, and grandnieces and grandnephews and so forth. Um, but in verse 23, we see the name Rebekah. This Rebekah will become Isaac's wife in the future. So as to not to intermarry with the Canaanites, Abraham is gone and, and uh, will go and find a wife um, from his own people. Um, so beyond figuratively returning Isaac from the dead um, in this story, God has already chosen his future wife in Rebekah. So beyond the events of today, we see the promise of descendants as numerous of stars will be fulfilled um, in Isaac and Rebekah. But that's getting um, a few weeks out. So as we come to the end of the text for this morning, it started with God's seemingly shocking command, followed by Abraham's immediate response, obedience and faith. At the story's climax, moments from killing his only son as a sacrifice to the Lord, God responds with an intervention and provides the ram as a substitute. Abraham is again commended for his faith. We saw that Isaac also had this faith of his father in allowing himself willingly to be bound and face death on the altar. God reaffirms the covenant promises with an oath, swearing by his own 
name that all the promises to Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, 17, land descendants, land and descendants forming a nation of God's people will come to pass. And all along, Moses, the author of Genesis, is showing glimpses of the life of Jesus Christ um, and foreshadowing through both Abraham and Isaac. And finally, the unique heart-pounding on the edge of the story concludes with a small genealogy identifying Isaac's future wife, Rebecca. So along the way, we tried to enter this story, feel what Abraham felt and Isaac felt. We've tried to consider what we would have done in both of these situations, both as the father and the son, hopefully. Questions have been asked of our fears, our doubts, our faith, how we would trust and obey. Could we make a significant sacrifice and so on? But what else can we take out of this uh, This passage that's relevant to us today? As Dr. Dave keeps reminding us, we are way too much like these Old Testament characters we read about than we want to admit. We are all in need of the same grace that they are. After all, the covenant that God has established with Abraham is the same one that he established with us, and that is the covenant of grace. A couple points to draw out as we consider this passage for our lives. First, are we like the young Abraham, sacrificing the wrong things to save our own hide? Do we try to solve our problems in our own ways without seeking or trusting in God? Or are we like the Abraham of Genesis 22, willing to sacrifice, or sorry, willing to surrender all because of his unshakable faith in God? Do we learn from the past lessons God teaches us? My guess is that most of us shift, shift back and forth between at different times and in seasons of life as Abraham um, did. But his sanctification, big um, reformer, his sanctification, his growth in holiness, his walk with the Lord took place over a long period of time, and so does ours. His ability to completely trust God happened over a long period. I don't think the obedience demonstrated in chapter 22 could have been done in chapter 12. The command in chapter 12 was easier. Leave the land of Ur and go to a place, I'll tell you, basically a road trip. But it wasn't sacrifice your son. The journey over these 35 plus years has has grown his faith stronger and stronger as God proved himself faithful, leading him to the place where Abraham can now face this test. And such is the case for us. Something that, uh, secondly, at the story's beginning, scripture records, God said to Abraham, we don't know if this was audible or if this was a vision or trance um, or what it was, but Abraham clearly heard God. And the important point is Abraham walked closely enough with God to hear him, especially given the magnitude of this command. Uh, do we hear God's voice? Probably a better question is, how do we hear God's voice in such a busy, noisy culture in which we live? It's very easy or convenient to not hear the things of God that sound uncomfortable or illogical. Um, We just get busy and can't hear it. The only way to hear God is to maintain a regular personal devotional and seek periods of quiet time for meditation and reflection um, if we really want to hear the voice of God in our lives. Third... um, Third um, thought for today is, what about when God tests us? We've talked about that. We looked at the reasons why earlier, and we saw um, from Abraham that God is both the tester and the provider of what we need to grow in our faith. But each time we go through a faith or a trial or a test, we come out with increased faith. We have a story to tell. These then become markers or pointers back to God. In the Old Testament, the Jews, when they conquered a land or an enemy or did something great, they would build they pile up rocks, like I think when they crossed the Jordan in the promise, they built up rocks. So there was these markers 
or pointers back to God. Um, Abraham planted trees. Sometimes they built altars um, as they went to the promised land. So we need rock piles, our stories, as pointers, reminders to what God has done for us in the past. So an example of how this works in my life, back to the opening story, you know, um, I think of a, a sinking boat and God's provision of a, of a Coast Guard rescue boat. If I'm working through a difficult time or something's going on, I use that as a marker or a pointer and then say, wait a minute, if you could save us from something this dire, then you can clearly help us through or me through this current situation. So there's great assurance knowing um, that I have a pointer to um, God's provision in the past. Um, what about sacrifices? Um, we know that God clearly prohibits murder. We do have that law now. Although in a sense, God still asks for sacrifices, but he's asking for a living sacrifice, not a dead sacrifice. Romans 12.1, which in a prior life took 12 sermons to get through. Romans 12.1 tells us, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And the key message here is worship. If you look at Abraham's answer um, to the sacrifice, he was going to worship. He was worshiping God with his all. And um, last point for, for today, the title of the sermon was The Provision of God, and we saw you know, the, the physical um, provision of the ram in place of Isaac as a substitute. We also saw the foreshadowing of Christ, the spotless lamb of God that would take away the sins of, take away our sins. God's greatest provision is the substitutionary death and sacrifice of his son for our salvation. Even if we feel that God is not meeting our felt needs in the way we would like, he has provided for our greatest real need um, with our salvation. In closing, um, and this was alluded to earlier, one commentator, Ron um, Hutchcraft, used the Lord of Rings as an illustration for this passage. Recall that the ring was called the precious, again, no voice, he likened Isaac, the son of laughter, the son of promise, as the precious to Abraham. Abraham was willing to sacrifice the precious if God really wanted him to. In reality, Abraham was simply releasing to God what was already God's. So what is our precious? What is our Isaac that we need to release to God? We know what God's precious was. Romans 8.32 told us, He who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Can we trust God with our preciouses? We need to pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we come to the end of this time. Your word, uh, your account of uh, faithfulness, uh, provision, uh, foreshadowing the Messiah, uh, great tests. Um, many, many things to take away from this. So we pray that you would um, impress these words upon our hearts. You would increase our faith. And we realize that may be asking for tests and trials. May we look at markers in our life, rock piles, pointers that you've shown yourself faithful. Um, that we may have the assurance to walk through. May we um, grow in our faith as um, the patriarchs did. We, uh, we do thank you for our salvation, for those that know you. Thank you for providing for our greatest need. Um, and as Jed pointed out earlier, it was nothing we could earn. Even that was a faith, um, is, uh, faith um, and that was your gift. May, uh, may we just continue to worship throughout this day, throughout this week, 
and thank you again for your uh, your promises and your assurances. We pray these things in Jesus' name.